Hello and welcome to the Edited Podcast, where we explore the opportunities and challenges the retail industry is facing. From fashion, beauty and homeware, myself, Grace Hill, will be chatting to leading experts in the industry to shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. We've recently launched our third annual sustainability edit, where we've unpacked the biggest questions in fashion, beauty and homeware. Alongside this, we've dedicated the next two episodes of the podcast to focus on this topic. As 2021 draws to a close, the need for sustainability in fashion is even more dire. According to the World Meteorological Organization, the impacts of lockdowns and limited travel on CO2 in the atmosphere only registered as a blip. Retailers have reinforced their sustainability goals to ensure targets are hit by 2030, but much more is needed and sooner. It's no secret how wasteful and polluting the fashion industry is, from visibly staining African waterways blue to reportedly costing US retailers $50 billion a year from dead stock alone. Sustainability is a multi-pronged issue with several complex factors, which will take more than a recycled capsule collection to solve the problem. Effort from retailers, consumers and government bodies are all required. On today's episode, we're joined by Claire Bergkamp, who is the Chief Operating Officer at Textile Exchange. Previously, Claire held the position of Worldwide Sustainability and Innovation Director for over eight years at Stella McCartney. Hi, Claire. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, you know, it goes without saying the positions that you've held in the industry are extremely impressive. So could you take us back to the beginning of your career and how you first got into the industry? Well, I had a kind of a starter career before this career, which was in the film industry. I worked as a costumer and costume designer Wow! many years ago now in, in my youth. That actually led me to question and be curious about the impact of the industry through the kind of continued shopping and access to more, more, more in a very contained way in some ways, but also you are purchasing a great deal of clothing as someone who's working in a costume department. I became curious about what the impact of the industry was, how this stuff was being made, why there was so much of it. I grew up in Montana and I think that, you know, being surrounded by environmentalists my whole life, some of that was kind of pre-programmed into me. And so I uh, started doing some soul searching and looking around and found myself in London um, at London College of Fashion, where I did my master's, which was in the business program, but focused all my work on sustainability and moved here to do that because at the time there really wasn't any opportunity to study what I wanted to study in the U.S., and then obviously, as you said earlier, you after you graduated from your master's at London College of Fashion, you started at Stella McCartney. What were some of the initiatives that you would say you were most proud of during your time there? I mean, there's a lot, honestly. I mean, I was there for almost nine years and Stella is such a pioneer and, you know, really wanted this stuff to happen that we, we managed to accomplish some pretty great stuff. I think that, you know, one of the really early big wins that we had was around transforming the supply chain that we used for Viscose. We're one of the first brands to really kind of tackle the forestry in our supply chain and create a supply chain, you know, maybe not create because we more uh, shifted an existing supply chain, but developed a supply chain that allowed us to source 
sustainable, traceable viscose, which was a big deal. And it still is a big deal. But especially at the time, this was maybe 2014, 2016. I think we kind of got it all done in 2017. It was a huge shift. And, you know, forestry, I think, you know, we're hearing more and more with uh, all the lead up to COP and the climate talks, the role that forests play globally for everything that we need on the planet is so critical. That was a big win. And then I think the other maybe kind of like one of the more nerdy wins, which was more in collaboration with the caring group, not something that, you know, we necessarily did on our own or did not do on our own on the environmental profit and loss and really getting to be a part of the kind of initial development phase with the caring group around developing a framework for understanding impact that goes beyond the kind of traditional ways of looking at it and assigns monetary value to impact, which was really fascinating and really enlightening and kind of helped frame my thinking on a lot of these issues by being a part of that process and really deep diving into where things come from and the more holistic view of impact that natural capital accounting and the environmental profit and loss provided. And I think as well, just thinking of the impact that both of those initiatives now have had and still continue to have right in the industry, I can imagine you were challenged with, you know, what's the commercials and the impact on the bottom line of the initiatives and how that forced you to work into that initiative with the caring group, which is super exciting and and innovative. So obviously, you spent nine years, you know, at Stella McCartney, and then you've joined Textile Exchange. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the textile exchange does and more about your role as chief operating officer. Absolutely. Textile Exchange focuses on raw materials, which is why I was drawn to the organization. One of many reasons, but I've always been really passionate about the kind of very beginning of the supply chain. I think there's a lot of opportunity to influence at that raw material stage, whether it's a forest or a farm or recycling, big impacts concentrated there. And I think incredible opportunities to have a beneficial impact and really shift systems. But Textile Exchange as an organization is a global nonprofit. We have over 640 members that represent the kind of breadth of the industry from brands to farmers. Most of the world's brands that you've heard of are members. Uh, We're very excited and honored to have such a robust membership. We develop, manage, and promote uh, leading industry standards. We also collect and publish vital industry data and insights. We hope that in doing that, we enable brands and retailers to measure, manage, and track their use of preferred fibers and materials, as well as have a more holistic understanding of the impact associated with those fibers and materials. Our purpose is to catalyze the textile and apparel industry by making positive impact the accessible default, the you know opportunity to have beneficial impact, the kind of percentage of fibers and materials that come from uh, lower impact sources is still the minority. We'd like it to be the majority. We'd like it to be the default option. I mean, we envision an original global textile industry that protects people and planet while positively impacting soil, climate, water, and biodiversity. And we really try and take that holistic view. You know, we have a really specific strategy that we call our climate plus strategy, which we're orientating all our work around. And at the heart of that, there's a goal of a 45% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030 in the pre-spin part of the industry. But it's got the plus because of that holistic point of view. So we don't look at, you know, climate in isolation. It's our North Star target. But the plus represents biodiversity, soil health and water, as well as partnership. So we're really focused on that holistic point of view. And on that topic of a holistic point of view, obviously that climate plus strategy goal that you have, obviously you can't look at one metric in isolation. How do you measure targets and goals and how you're progressing towards those? Well, we have um, a kind of a series of different interventions that we offer the industry. One of our kind of key tools is something called the Corporate Fiber and Material Benchmark and the Material Change Index that accompanies it. And it is a peer-to-peer benchmarking platform 
where we ask companies to report in their use of preferred fibers and materials, lower impact fibers and materials, um, and we track it year on year. We kind of consider it one of the mechanisms for industry accountability. So it actually tracks the usage and uptake of preferred fibers and materials. We also publish a market report which looks at beyond kind of the information that we're having directly kind of um, submitted to us. It looks at the full industry usage across all textiles of what's happening, what the trends are, where things are increasing or decreasing. Those two are kind of, I guess, the mechanisms for tracking the progress of actual usage. And then, you know, we, like I guess anyone, apply uh, different coefficients to that to look at carbon reduction, water, soil health, those other indicators. But taking that more holistic view, we have a tool that we'll be releasing in the nearest future called the Preferred Fibers and Material Matrix, which then does start to look at how to rate the impact of things like biodiversity, animal welfare, human rights. We have pretty good mechanisms for looking at carbon. You probably need to get better, but we have some. But we haven't typically, as an industry, spent so much time looking at biodiversity. Um, and that's something that we're expanding our focus on quite a bit. Um, and then the last one I'll kind of comment on is that we also develop standards, like I said. So we develop industry standards for things like responsible wool, responsible mohair and alpaca. We have a global recycling standard. We also certify organic cotton. These certifications includes things around biodiversity biodiversity planning at the farm level. It looks at grazing practices that can help improve soil health. It's a really direct mechanism for having an influence at the farm level. And then on top of that, providing a brand the verification mechanism to link that impact all the way through to the finished product. So I think that's a really kind of important and powerful lever for the industry to keep on pulling <laughs> of just using more certified materials. Absolutely. This is a topic that kind of troubles me and I find it quite difficult when we're talking with our customers as well at Edited is like when thinking of sustainability, there are so many elements to it, but there's also not one universal definition that you can rely on. And I feel that leaves room for, you know, open to interpretation and the impact that that can then have on the end consumer as well. From your experience, how should we be defining sustainability? Oh, such a good question. I get asked it a lot and I never really know how to answer it, if I'm honest, because I think that in its nature, it is quite open-ended. For us, within what we're looking at at Textile Exchange, if we want to achieve a 45% reduction in greenhouse gases, there are some kind of key things that we know need to happen. And I think that they start to build out maybe the fundamentals of what sustainability means. One of them is slowing growth, which is not the most popular topic, but it's really important that we keep on bringing it up. All of the modeling that we did looking at how we get to that 45% reduction, we didn't really get there unless we slowed growth. And by growth, we, we mean the continual increase of new raw materials year on year. So if we take the assumption of a 3% year-on-year increase in new materials, so 3% more year-on-year of cotton, of polyester, very hard to achieve the reduction, basically impossible. <laughs> Maybe there's like a magic solution, but like, let's not count on that magic solution because it doesn't exist yet. Really, to get within a 45 degree pathway, you need to slow growth through around 1% year on year. And that's, you know, that's hard for industry to hear. What that really means is that you have to look at extending durability and resale and you just have to cut out waste because there's so much inefficiency. There's so much opportunity to look at, you know, prosperity and profit while reducing the need for new raw materials at the rate that we're at right now. So to me, that's actually like a very big part of sustainability is really questioning the status quo, you know, figuring out a new way of existing on the planet that is in balance 
balance with the planet and not existing outside of the planetary boundaries. Um, and then the other two kind of areas I would say are around scaling the things that we know that work. So we know that organic cotton has a much lower footprint. We know that recycled materials have a much lower footprint. How do we scale those? How do we get beyond these like really small percentages to much bigger percentages? You know, we're at 1% around with organic cotton. I think recycled polyester is around 14%. It's not enough. It's scary, isn't it, when you say those figures, yeah. you know, knowing how important this topic is, you know, and then the fact that it's such a small percentage, really, grand scheme of things. Tiny percentage, not good enough, not good enough at all. <laughs> Definitely not. And I guess as well, when you think about, you know, how much of the marketing campaigns are taken up from brands and retailers on using these specific textiles and fabrications, it's imbalanced, I would assume. Yeah, I was at the TED Countdown event and uh, someone from a brand was talking about how much investment, you know, their brand makes in the user experience, the sale, you know, like how much money goes into making sure that your sales experience is pleasant. You know, no discredit, you know, not to say you shouldn't do that. But if you just took a little bit of that budget and put it into transforming the supply chain, you know, you could probably see some pretty big changes. But this it's it's a big shift, you know, it's not just going to happen by saying you want to do it. It requires, you know, the intelligent minds that run these companies to put that intelligence towards these topics. You know, when we're thinking about what sustainability means, it's got to be front and center and core to the business, just as the same way that a retail strategy is. I believe that CEOs should know as much about sustainability as they do about their retail strategy, which, you know, most don't, frankly. No. And that was a, the question that I want to get onto in, in a bit is educating industry insiders, because I think from my experience in the industry and um, where I was working in merchandising and buying, and denim specifically, five years ago, my experience and knowledge of the impact that I was having on the environment was far uh, smaller than it should have been, really. And the decisions, the impact that I was making is terrifying, really, when I think back to it. But I guess on that topic of particular categories within the industry, would you say areas such as footwear or denim maybe are lagging in terms of sustainabilities? Or are there standout areas that you think require more investment? I think the areas that are lagging are businesses that encourage disposability. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a specific product category as much as it is a kind of how is something being offered? Is it being offered as something that is of a quality that's not going to last more than one or two wears? of an aesthetic that is, you know, very fleeting. That to me is where the lagging is. There's still, you know, new businesses coming online all the time, it feels like, that are really set up to capture a bit of a zeitgeist moment, but with no consideration of the impact of the product or the fact that it's going to end up in landfill. And to me, like that continues to be the big hurdle is that the companies that are trying to embed sustainability more into themselves are competing with those companies that take very little consideration as to what their impact might be and only focus on profit without, you know, looking at human rights, looking at waste creation. That's still an issue. And I think a lot of time in the industry focusing on the, the people that have been out there talking about this for a long time. You know, and maybe their business models don't kind of logically match some of the things they say. And so not not to say we shouldn't kind of continue to hold pressure on those organizations. But I think that we really have to have a kind of reckoning of companies that are, you know, blatantly disregarding anything that looks like consideration of the balance between nature and production or human rights. 
Yeah, it's that feeling of that kind of like mass consumption, isn't it? And that consumer culture. And I think you were mentioning about having to slow the growth of specific raw materials, but we also need to slow the growth of the need and the want to like just buy newness and what responsibility do the brands have? But one thing I think I'm really interested in is the topic of accountability. So according to yourselves on your site, it says by 2030, our goal at Textile Exchange is to guide the textile industry to achieve a 45% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions within fiber and raw material production. You also mentioned obviously peer-to-peer with the material change index that they have to kind of upload their usage of preferred fibers and materials. You know, how do you promote accountability within retailers and challenge them to commit to these targets as well? We reach out to them, talk to them. The benchmark is a great tool for that. You know, it's a good kind of pathway. We give companies the option to kind of test it out, understand it before they, you know, publicly publish their results. It's a great tool for companies that are even just starting out because you a sense of what you should be looking for, what questions you should be asking to have an understanding of these impacts and your material usage. That's how we do it. We're more of a carrot than a stick organization. We say we name to fame, not to name to shame. Uh, We're really about trying to create leadership in the industry and make that something that is uh, something people want to be a part of. We partner with other initiatives. We're working with the Fashion Pact a lot right now. I'm also the co-chair for the Raw Materials Working Group for the Fashion Industry Charter for Climate Action, housed under the UNFCCC. We partnered with them to create the Raw Material Challenge on Recycled Polyester, asking the industry to move away from virgin towards recycled with the absolute target of 14.1 million metric tons of recycled polyester replacing virgin by 2025 with the idea of increasing that again for 2030, creating these kind of pathway moments. So that's how we do it. Honestly, we are really just about reaching out to folks, trying to get them engaged. We do have such a robust membership community. We talk to our members. We ask them to participate. We hope that we make it seem desirable and fun yeah. <laughs> as much as it can be as supporting <laughs> your impact is. But the other thing is truthfully, like publicly traded companies are getting this pressure in a, in a very serious way from investors. And And so, you know, many companies are pressured, you know, from the investment community to do this. Um, Many of them have been pressured for a long time and are way ahead of the curve. There is a real interest and pressure, uh, especially for publicly traded companies, I think, to do this. And then there's an opportunity for a competitive advantage. And so a lot of companies want to show their leadership and push that way. I guess they've probably been asked more than ever on investor calls about their commitment to sustainability. It probably wasn't something you would ever have expected to be asked even five years ago, I can imagine. Obviously, where you are an expert in the field and the textile exchange is a leader in you know, preferred materials and fibers, what would you say are the most exciting fiber and material innovations in the market right now? Those that maybe you're recommending to retailers and brands to investigate and potentially implement into their products and assortments? One of the things that we talk about is there's an innovation gap. Like when we look and we look and we try and like add up all the levers to get to that 45%, one of them is what we call the innovation gap. 
And one of the innovations that we're putting in there, which probably some people wouldn't call an innovation, but is the one that I see as one of the most promising, is regenerative agriculture. And we are calling it an innovation because it's not currently captured in any type of industry studies around opportunity. So it's not something that you can quantify. And it's also something that's not widely scaled. Um, regenerative agriculture builds on indigenous practice. You know, it is really about going back and working with the planet against it of against it around rebuilding soil health, rebuilding grasslands, different grazing mechanisms. But regenerative offers a promise of the opportunity to sequester carbon instead of just reduce it. And so when you're thinking about natural materials, you know, the cottons, the wools, there's such an opportunity that we need to kind of double down on, I think, as an industry to look at what those practices are that move away from, you know, emission towards sequestration. Um, the other one continues to always be the textile to textile recycling. You know, this still is really unscaled tech. Um, it's starting to get more available, but we do not, as an industry, do a good job recycling our textiles back into textiles. You know, with the recycled polyester challenge that we have, uh, we knew that that what we would be scaling to start is recycled polyester from plastic water bottles. And so we really want companies to double down on figuring out, you know, well, because they're out there. These technologies exist. I've seen them. You know, like there is good chemical recycling for polyester. There's lower impact ones. We really want to see those get up and running in a much bigger way because the industry needs to start dealing with its own waste a lot more. Econil nylon, you know, is a great example of one that exists for nylon. There are ones that are up and coming for polyester, but I would love it if the industry focused a lot of its innovation and attention on those technologies that would allow for textile to textile recycling. And how in your role or as an organization, how do you go about discovering or learning more about these technologies, as it were? I mean, honestly, we're not the organization that focuses as much on that type of material innovation. We rely on um, organizations like Fashion for Good, which is based out of Amsterdam. And their entire reason to be is identifying and piloting and helping scale innovation, not only innovation in materials, but innovation in general. It was founded around the principles of from cradle to cradle and the five goods. And so they're dedicated to identifying and supporting innovation that is meant to make the world a better place. So we talk to them. We talk to brands, you know, we want to highlight and support innovation, but we're not really the one that's out there kind of vetting it. Amazing. And you've spoken, obviously, about your experience in luxury retail and the impact that they can have on the rest of the industry. But I'd love to hear from your experience, some of the differences you've seen between the luxury and mass markets when it comes to developing sustainable ranges and product lines. One thing that's really interesting in the luxury space is that there's a lot that happens that no one talks about, which is different. Not, not completely different. There are some more mass market players that I think do things quietly. But interestingly, a lot of luxury brands haven't decided to market this yet. You know, they've been kind of quietly working away. I won't name any because I don't know if they want to be named, but I have um, experience with some very, very, you know, prominent, you know, top tier luxury brands doing some really great work and just not feeling like they needed to communicate it. They have such a powerful voice. But, you know, at this moment, a lot of those guys are not a lot, but there's a handful, certainly, that seem to think that it's not 
what they want to be known for, which I find really fascinating. Whereas I think in mass market, it is considered more of a competitive advantage. And so you see like when a company does something that they normally shout about it pretty loud. And you know, there are luxury brands that do that as well. But I see more quiet activity in luxury than I do in mass market. Why do you think that it is that they don't want to be known for that? Like just from your experience? I don't know. I guess like those brand, you know, those heritage brand, that brand DNA, it's so coveted and protected. Yeah. yeah. You know, they just kind of like hold it close to themselves. And I guess to even like add any additional like communication pillar is such a big thing for one of those heritage brands. Yeah. It has to be incredibly thought through. Yeah. <laughs> you don't just like, here's a story about organic cotton, you know? Exactly. Let's put it on our website. No, absolutely. Yes. You know, some of them don't even have e-commerce yeah. sites. It's uh, pretty telling. You've mentioned how you're particularly passionate about the start of the supply chain and the impact that those you know raw materials can have. But what are the greatest opportunities for brands, whether that's luxury or mass market, to be sustainable across their supply chain? Well, I do think starting with your materials is, is a good place to start um, <laughs> because there's a lot of impact there. You know, it really depends on what a brand's fiber mixes and material mixes. But it, you know, it ranges from like ten to 75% of their overall footprint, which I know is drastic, but it really does kind of depend on what materials you're using and then where you're producing. So if you know, if you have no coal in your supply chain, but you're using high impact materials, that part's going to look like a bigger piece of the pie. So it varies, but it's significant. So I think starting there and scaling up, you know, your if you're if you're a cotton brand, use organic cotton. If you're using a lot of polyester, use recycled polyester. And then when you get into the supply chain, there is there's a lot, you know, <laughs> across the board. I do think that phasing out coal in our supply chains is absolutely critical. You know, switching to renewable energy across the fashion supply chain has the potential to reduce emissions of the fashion industry between 25 and 30%. Phasing coal out alone would be a 10 to 15% reduction in the manufacturing and fabric creation stage. Like these are big reduction opportunities. There's so much non-renewable usage happening. You know, whether it's coal or gas, we need to bring in renewable sources for manufacturing. Manufacturing is very energy intensive. This is not our area of focus as textile exchange. It's something that I hear a lot about through the work with the UN, something that an organization like the Apparel Impact Institute focuses on through programs like Clean by Design. But to me, like from an environmental point of view, that's the kind of other really critical one right now is changing the energy sources that the factories are powered by because there's a lot of energy that goes into making any product. And then we can't forget human rights. Like we're talking about environmental issues and uh, that is certainly the kind of primary focus we have at Textile Exchange, but you can't ignore the human impact of production. And so no matter where you're producing, you know, making sure that people are treated well throughout the supply chain. Yeah, firstly, staggering the impact that just changing the energy sources could have, but also, as you said, the human rights element, you know, off the back of COVID, the silver lining was the reduction in, you know, emissions, but then the realization of the $1.5 billion worth of cancelled orders and what that meant for factory workers and being paid a living wage. It's terrifying, really, what the knock-on effects can be and the fact that it's not just thinking about climate and the environment, but also the human element. So talking about humans, according to McKinsey's study on APAC Gen Zs. The cohort, obviously, as it's been widely publicized, really care about sustainable consumption, but they often won't pay the price tag. How can brands make sustainability more accessible for everybody? 
That's a good one. The price issue comes up so much in all of this, and it's the number one barrier. It just is. A couple things. I think governments have a role to play here. I think that the legislators of the world, the policymakers of the world can level the playing field. I think that they can reduce, you know, burden on cost through tax benefits, tax reductions, tariff, you know, policy that helps companies reduce their cost, you know, because it, it, it simply costs more to grow things organically. Like, you can't pretend that it doesn't because you're using a system that its only kind of focus isn't profit. You know, it's looking at other indicators other than profit. And that just ends up costing more. And that's okay. Like, that's a good thing because someone's being paid, you know? We're not pumping, you know, pesticides and chemicals in and using seeds that are causing poverty cycle. Like, there's, it's a good thing. But how that gets translated to the end customer and like how that price difference occurs is such one of the levers we can't ignore. And so I do think policymakers can help because two things, I think there should be consumer protection. I don't think you should have the option in a marketplace to go buy something that is going to to create waste immediately that was created using toxic resources and that doesn't have basic human rights in place. Like there should be an entry level like barrier to entering the marketplace. I think yeah. there should be some protection there. Like I really do. Like we got to have a baseline and it doesn't like even have to be here, but like just a baseline, you know? And then I think that- some minimum standards. Yeah, <laughs> minimum standards. And then I think companies need to figure out how to communicate that value because there's a there's price and then there's value. And right now we often link the two. And like, if you can communicate the value of something that was created ethically and without toxic inputs, like that's going to be more meaningful. There's a couple of reasons that people don't always kind of follow through with their purchase. You know, they say one thing and then they purchase differently. One of them is that people don't trust brands. And so like, I think there's a lot of distrust and like fear of greenwashing. And I think that again, you know, some regulation on claims starting to kind of clean up that marketplace would give yeah. the customer some actual relief that they're purchasing something better. And then the other thing is that if there's more offering, there's more options to choose sustainably. Very few people will buy something that is sustainable over something that fits them well. Like if those are your choices, like something sustainable or something that you think you look really good in, pretty much everybody picks the thing they think they look really good in. So like you need more options. You need things that, you know, kind of fill a wider view of how you look, how you want to feel. It can't be so niche. I think as soon as there starts to be more option, I think we we will see the marketplace shift more towards people aligning their purchase with their values more. And with the, you know, the topic of more options, that's definitely become top of mind for a lot of brands and retailers. As you said, we're definitely by no means anywhere near the level of options that are required to kind of enable people to make that choice each and every time. But it seems that all fast fashion players seem to be launching sustainable and in inverted common ranges for the mass market at a more accessible price point. What is your opinion on these capsules? And do you think they're helping the industry inch towards a more sustainable future? I don't think that capsules are helping the industry at all. No, <laughs> I think that when you call it a capsule and you create it as a separate van, that is a problem. I think if you are a company who's all of a sudden embedding sustainable materials into your offering, that is very different than saying, here's my good part and ignore the bad part. 
it's just more and it's a difference and it should be like no just make all your t-shirts not you know make them organic make this all recycled you know like not don't hold it separately you know just start to integrate it it's a marketing mechanism i guess in some senses so do you think that there is more that can be done on educating those who work within the industry on the impact that their decisions are making and and how do you think this teaching could look yeah i mean in a I mean, you said you were in a brand before, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm shamed to say this, but I don't think it was really a consideration when we were talking about, you know, ordering more units or rejecting a fit and having to get more samples or knowing that maybe we were overbuying to meet MOQs, you know, all those types of things that I just don't sit well with me now. But at the time, wasn't a consideration of me personally, but also wasn't something I was challenged about when working for that brand either. And I think this is where it's tricky is like there are a million decisions that someone in that kind of a role makes in a day, you know, from what material they're going to use to what country they're going to manufacture in to how many units they're going to place, how many samples are going to exist. Are they going to end up pulling an order because of a delivery timeline change? Like there are a thousand opportunities to make a good decision and a thousand opportunities to make a less good decision. And I do think that there is a lot more education needed because that can feel really overwhelming. I think it's, you know, these topics can feel really overwhelming in general. And knowing a few decisions that you can start to make that have a difference, I think is what we need to empower the industry with is here are a few things to focus on to start that we know will have a really important, big, outsized impact in reduction. And so I was never a buyer and never a designer, like that's not my background. So I think it's different per brand as to how they're set up, you know, what their price point is and where those levers that can be pulled first are. But I do think that there needs to be more education. And I think it does need to be at a very high level amongst the people in charge so that they empower it, you know, so that they say we are going to stop doing over ordering. This is just the way it is now. So like everyone's got to figure that out. You know, these are great, intelligent, wonderful people running these companies. Mm -hmm. We're going to make a concerted effort to stop using virgin synthetics. Like let's figure that out, you know? So like I do think there needs to be education, but I think that there needs to be simplified options as well so that it doesn't just become completely overwhelming. Absolutely. As you said, they are making thousands of decisions all of the time and bearing the commercial targets on their shoulders as well. And I think if your senior management is leading by example and even simplifying from a brand or a business perspective, this is where we want to focus and make a difference. As you said, that will definitely help there. You broached the subject of greenwashing a moment ago. And obviously in our most recent sustainability report, we included some stats from Drapers, which said that 69% of consumers don't always trust brands and retailers. I guess, what strategies do you think brands should employ to ensure they don't fall into that trap of greenwashing? I mean, again, I'm going to answer probably mostly from the fibers and materials point of view. Of course. I really think certification is the best option for brands because it's proof. It's not you claiming it. Someone else has verified it for you. And I think communicating that, being like, we didn't, we're not calling this organic cotton. You know, there has been a lot of people along the supply chain that verified this input, including a verification at the farm, you know, that this was grown differently. This is actually recycled. This is actually this. To me, I think certification is a very important mechanism for starting to build back consumer trust. And I 
I think that needs to be communicated more and that needs to be a bigger part of the material offering. And we own certifications, but there are a lot of other certifications that are not ours. I think certification in general is really important for building back that trust that, yes, this is what we say it is. You're not taking our word for it. There's a mechanism of verification put in place. And that's the one that I'm the most familiar with. But I think anything like that, that has a third party verification, that has a real verification built into it, is how you build back the trust of the customer. Because you're not just taking a company's word for it. Because I think healthy skepticism towards companies is not a bad thing. Companies really are trying. (laughs) So it is that balance of like, okay, we're going to prove it to you. You don't have to take our word for it. Totally. From a consumer's perspective, are there any kind of headline certifications that you would say to look out for and be vigilant for just from their perspective as well? There's a lot. I think the global recycling standard, which is one of ours, proves recycled content. So that's a good one. Um, there's the global organic textile standard, which is not one of ours, uh, GOTS, as well as the organic content standard, which is one of ours, <laughs> just full <laughs> transparency. But any of those organic certifications are great. There's a kind of suite of responsible animal standards that we run, which is responsible wool, alpaca, and mohair, as well as a down standard, which animal welfare is a big consideration, plus environmental impact. Sure. The forest FSC, which is a forestry certification, is a great one, you know, for viscose or forestry-based products. Um, I think those are some of the kind of really majorly used ones. And I think FSC applies to any forestry thing. So rubber can be FSC certified as well. Yeah. Um, Those are great ones to keep an eye out for. Those have verification, you know, supply chain mechanisms that back them up. And I guess, you know, if I could just ask you one final question, if brands and retailers were to implement just one thing, one change that would have the greatest impact, what could that be? Can I have two? (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) I want to hear both. That's why. (laughs) I do think renewable energy is critical. So I'm going to say renewable energy. And then I'm going to say using preferred fibers of materials, because those are two things that we know exist and we know we can scale. We know that we know we have a really great idea of how to bring renewables into supply chain. And we definitely know which fibers and materials are lower impact. So if we scaled those two things, we would see a totally different industry. On that, my actual final question, sorry. (laughs) So where do you hope to see the industry in the next five years? I really hope that we have moved away from disposable fashion. Maybe that's an ambitious goal for the next five years. It's really soon. I would love that. I would love that the idea that you can buy something and throw it away is done. We've realized that there's way more value than that in anything, no matter the price point. Um, And that business model has evaporated. That would be my dream. (laughs) And that we have scaled the supply chain solutions or we are scaling because they will not be scaled. But we are well on our way towards shifting away from really low percentages of more sustainable materials and traceability towards that being the majority of what's happening. Amazing. And as you said, there are some really simple, not simple in terms of implementation, but simple options that they can take to make such huge strides in reaching those goals and targets. So Claire, thank you so much for coming on. I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you and hearing your point of view on it. It's been fantastic. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our latest episode of the Edited Podcast. And thank you to today's guest, 
Claire Bergkamp, Chief Operating Officer at Textile Exchange. If you've enjoyed our conversation on sustainability, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date on all our future episodes. And if you want to read any more of our data on this topic, all of the links can be found in the description of this episode. If you're a customer of Edited, please contact your dedicated Edited team member if you have any questions. And for all of our listeners, please ensure you're subscribed to our Insider Briefing, where you can get all of our latest data analysis and strategies for the retail industry. We'd love to know what you would like to hear in our podcast. And if you have any suggestions for themes or guests, you can get in touch with us on our Instagram at edited underscore HQ. I'm Grace Hill, and I will see you next time. Bye. Bye.